Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Oh, is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life. Oh, is my song. And you are good. You're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let. You're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let. You're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let. You're never gonna let me down. You. 
Most of you are like me. It's easy to live our lives getting caught up in the details so that we at times miss sight of the big picture. Uh, the details of life obviously matter because in those details they all fit together to make up the whole. But losing sight of the big picture is dangerous. Uh, we have a phrase for it. We call it losing perspective. Uh, imagine going to see a show on Broadway and leaving with this profound thought. Wow, uh, my, sh my seat sure was comfortable. Or uh, imagine going to the Grand Canyon and, and having this thought in your mind on your way back to the car. Man, uh, this place sure does make your shoes dusty. Or imagine going to Fenway Park in Boston and the whole walk home from the park back to your hotel, uh, just going on and on about how great the hot dog was. Right? Nobody uh, goes to Broadway, nobody leaves Broadway talking about the seat they sat in. Uh, nobody uh, leaves the Grand Canyon talking about the dust on their shoes. Nobody leaves Fenway Park talking about the hot dog because to do so would be to lose sight of the bigger picture. It, was to, it would be to have things out of perspective or out of focused. But the irony is this. Many of us live our lives that way. We allow the, the little details of life to steal away our perspective of the bigger picture. We are walking, talking beings who have been made in the image of God and who have been called up into an eternal kingdom of God. And we're busy musing about the seats we sit in and murmuring about the dust in our shoes and reveling in the hot dog with chili and cheese. You know, something has gone wrong with our perspective. You say, but what's so, what's so bad about getting lost in the details? Well, the problem is this. When we lose sight of the big picture, we end up wasting our lives. We end up giving ourselves over to the things that we know actually aren't the most important things, right? We all have this list of the things that we know are most important in life, and yet somehow we find ourselves giving ourselves to other things that are are less important and, and less valuable. So how do we keep from wasting our lives? Um, how do we make sure that we live a life of significance? Well, I see two main ingredients to the recipe. First is this. We need for God to paint for us what the big picture of life really is. There's so many ideas out there about what the big picture of life is, what the good life is, but we need for God to come in and to set the frame and to fill in the picture for us of what the good, good life really is and what the big picture really is. But there's more than that. We also need for God to graciously empower us to pursue that big picture. See, it's one thing to know what a life of significance is, 
but it's a whole other thing to actually live a life of significance. How many of us in this room can quote the chief end of man, and yet we live our lives below the high standard of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever? So if we are going to live a life of significance, we first have to know what what that life is, but then we are also desperate for God's grace because unless He speaks life into our life, we'll get distracted. Uh, As we turn now to Psalm 71, uh, what you're going to notice is that it's kind of like we're getting a, a little inside scoop into an older man's, an older saint's prayer journal. Uh, He's getting to the end of his life, and he's pouring out his heart to God, and you can tell that he really wants to finish well. He really wants to go all the way to the end, where he takes his last breath glorifying God. And so as we read the psalm, I want you to just take note. Take note of of how it feels like we're almost reading an older saint's prayer journal. This is Psalm 71. If you're new to the Bible, Psalms are in pretty much in the middle of the Bible. So if you kind of flip open right to the middle, you should be able to find the Psalms. And then 71 is near the middle of the book of Psalms. Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. 
you will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. This is the word of the Lord. So what I see in this psalm is uh, that the psalmist is pointing us in five different directions of God's grace for a lifetime of significance. And the first direction that the psalmist points us is down to consider what is under our feet. What is the foundation that our life is built upon? So if you're taking notes there first, we need God's grace for a lifetime of trust. We need God's grace for a lifetime of trust. Uh, you are going to trust in something. It doesn't matter uh, what, what season you're going through, when you're alive, who you are, you are going to trust in something. Trust is what you lean on. Uh, you might trust in money. Uh, you might trust in your family. You may even just simply trust in yourself. But all of us, because we're alive, we're going to trust in something. And right here from the very beginning, this psalmist uh, launches out to, to show us where his trust is. And so let's read verses 1 through 3 again. He says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Uh, if you've been tracking with us at all over the last two years through the Psalms, uh, it, it should ring a bell in your ears that these two images uh, have over and over and over again been used by the Psalms to talk about our trust in God, the image of a refuge and the image of a rock. That in other words, all human beings, we need a place of safety where we can hide and we need a, a foundation of stability upon which we can stand. And we're all seeking, we're all seeking out that place of safety and that place of stability. See, what we put our trust in, what you put your trust in, isn't just a hypothetical question. Because constantly throughout your life, the things that you put your trust in get tested. The things that you have sought to find safety in come under attack. Uh, look how he says it in verses 4 through 6. He says, Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you have I leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. So considering what we trust in isn't just this fun mental exercise. Uh, we as human beings are constantly looking for safety and we're constantly looking for stability. Uh, one of the scariest things in the world to me is uh, the reality of sinkholes. Uh, I know, I'm sure we've got some people that um, came to Myrtle Beach, you, you moved here from up north. Uh, the reason that you're not in Florida and that you're here in Myrtle Beach is because you heard about sinkholes. And you know uh, that one day you could leave, leave your house, everything seems normal, everything seems fine, and then you come home from work, or you come home from a nice day at the pool, and all of a sudden your house is now a big giant crater in the ground in your front yard. Right? Sinkholes are scary because on the surface, everything looks fine. Right? On the surface, it seems to be holding up. Everything's good. 
But then in an instant, uh, everything has fallen apart. Everything has imploded. And so we have to ask the question, when we're seeking for, for something to trust, is the thing we're trusting in just something that's trustworthy on the surface? Or is the thing that we're trusting in, does the thing we're trusting in actually have substance? When you think about God, when you think about trusting Him, I'm here this morning inviting you to trust and trust your life into God's hands. Um, I wonder if you might think, maybe is God a sinkhole? Is He something that I'm trying to trust, but He's going to let me down? And uh, I think that's a, a realistic question. But I want you to look particularly at verse 6, and I want you to see the grace of God demonstrated for us here in verse 6. This, this just absolutely blows me away. The psalmist says, Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. Typically, when we think and talk about uh, the different ways that God has been faithful in our lives, you know, if someone were to come up to you and ask you, you know, how God's been faithful in your life, you might start back with some of your earliest memories, and you might think of the different ways in which God provided for you. Uh, you might think of the different people that he sent into your life at just the right time, or the way that God worked out certain circumstances to, to come through for you in, in, in great ways. But what I love about this, this psalm is that the psalmist is actually pointing us uh, to see that God's faithfulness actually exists even before we took our first breath. That if you're here today and you're a Christian, it means that God came to you when you were in your mother's womb and he said, you're mine. God's faithfulness, His substance, is so far beneath the, substance, the surface that His faithfulness to you is founded in eternity. He has had His love set on you from before you took your first breath. And He won't let you down. So stepping back to think about the big picture, Right? We're all going to put our trust somewhere. We're all going to lean on something with our lives. But only God is truly trustworthy. Uh, your money will fluctuate. There will be people in your family who will let you down. Uh, if you choose to put your trust in yourself, eventually at some point you will self-implode. Uh, anything in our lives that we trust other than God will eventually be a sinkhole in our lives. That it might look good on the surface for a season. It might look good on the surface for a time, but at some point, that thing is going to implode. But by God's grace, He is inviting us today to build our lives on His rock, a rock to which we may continually come and know that He's been faithful to us before we were even born. So we're thinking about the directions of God's grace. First, we look down. Uh, now the psalmist is going to invite us to look forward. He's going to invite us to look onto the horizon. And so second, we need God's grace for a lifetime of hope. We need God's grace for a lifetime of hope. Um, you are going to seek hope in something. Hope is what gives you uh, the excitement about your future. It's what gives your life meaning. It's, it's what you 
are pressing hard after. The psalmist here at the end of his life, as he, as he uh, thinks about his old age, he feels his hope tested. And so let's dive back into the scripture here and look at verses 7 through 14. Read that again. He says, I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. Now that word portent there in verse 7 is a word that I actually didn't know uh, until coming across this text. Uh, portent means like a negative sign. In other words, uh, people saw the psalmist as like a bad omen or as a uh, bad luck charm. You know, imagine how you would feel if every time you walked into the room, everybody thought, oh man, here comes Sally again. Oh my gosh. Or, oh my man, here comes Morgan. We're definitely going to lose the game now, right? And, and that, that, you know, it's fun to think about it like that. But, but then the, the, the reality of the psalmist, the way he, the pressure he's feeling from the opinions of others in his life goes even deeper than that. Listen to what they're saying about him. They're saying, God has forsaken him. God has forsaken him. That is the definition of hopeless. Being forsaken is being abandoned. It is being left behind. It is being left for dead. So think about this. If the psalmist had put his hope in the opinions of others he would have been crushed. If he had put his hope in his youth and in his vitality as he moved up in old age, he would have been defeated. No, he knew. He knew that his hope needed to be anchored to something more secure than either his own performance or in the opinions of others. And that's why he says in verse 14, but I will hope continually and praise you yet more and more. The psalmist had an assurance which cut through his own fading age and strength and cut through the, the bleak opinions of others in his lives. He was anchored to the glorious God. So stepping back and thinking about the big picture again, thinking about your life, you are going to seek hope in something. You are going to try to find something that will secure for you a bright future. But what we learn from this scripture is that God himself is the only trustworthy hope. Um, here at Palmetto Shores Church, we believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that while you and I had sinned against God and, and thus been separated from him, he loved us so much that he sent his son to save us. Uh, Jesus Christ, God's son, lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, and then he was resurrected again on the third day. And what was happening... When Jesus was dying on the cross, what was happening there that day on Calvary on that cross? Jesus was experiencing the God forsakenness 
that our sins deserve so that those who place their faith in him can know that no matter what's happening in life, no matter what the opinions are of people towards us, and no matter how we even feel about ourselves, God will not forsake us. Jesus Christ was sent to the forsakenness of sin and death so that you and I could know for sure that God is for us. He loves us, and he will not abandon us. But here's the funny thing about hope. While we are hoping, we will always appear to be forsaken. Think about it. If you already had the thing that you were hoping for, then it would no longer be hope. So while you're hoping for it, while you've put your, your faith and your trust in the future that Jesus has secured for you, you have to live within that hope while you don't already have what you know is coming. But here's the difference. Here's the difference between wishing that God might come through and putting your hope in Jesus. The difference is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he was raised from the dead. And we have a sure an undaunting hope that because of what he has already done, God will not forsake us. He will not let us go. Our, our hope is not just a wish. Our hope is a secure and anchored hope to a risen and reigning Savior. I think if I'm honest, um, when I think about the church of, of our moment, like sort of right now, in the, in the moment of where we live and the time and place where we are right now, I don't know that I could think of a more important thing for Christians to exhibit gospel hope, the kind of gospel hope that just explodes the disappointments of life, that says no matter what's going on around me, no matter what people think about me, no matter how I might even feel about, about my future right now, but because of what Jesus has done, I'm brimming with hope. I'm brimming with confidence that God is in control. I can't think of a more important thing uh, as Paul says in Romans 15, 19, if we have hoped in Christ for this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So we've looked down to think about what's under our feet. We've been invited to look forward to think about what our hope is in. And now we're going to look behind. We're going to look back and consider our legacy to consider what we're going to leave behind. And so third, we need God's grace for a lifetime of ministry. We need God's grace for a lifetime of ministry. You are going to pass on something. You are going to pass on knowledge. You are going to pass on experiences. You're going to pass on your habits and your way of life, and some of you are going to pass on your DNA. Uh, whether you are even trying to or not, you are going to leave some legacy with your life. And so I think now we've seen that this psalmist, he's this, he's this old man, he's this old mature saint who's thinking back on his life, thinking about God's grace in his life, and he can't help but think about his legacy. We'll pick up there in verse 15. He says, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. 
O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? After experiencing a lifetime of God's grace and faithfulness, all the psalmist wants to do is to pass one thing down, one important, all-important thing down to the next generation. Right? He's not interested in telling his own war stories. He's not interested in sort of padding the stats on his success. He's not interested in passing out tips to make sure that everybody in his family can get ahead in this life. There's one thing and one thing only that that becomes the burden of his heart as he gets down to his old age. The one thing that he wants to pass down to the next generation is the good news of God's salvation and the glory of the God of salvation. He has one thing and one thing only that has become his burden to pass on. Every generation has the responsibility to steward the gospel and the wonderful truths of God by passing them on to the next generation. Think about this. You could fail to teach your kids how to brush their teeth and still be faithful. You could fail to help some other young businessman in this church figure out their business and still be faithful. You could have absolutely no inheritance whatsoever to leave behind uh, to your family members, and you could still be faithful. There is one thing, there is one thing that will make the difference in your life between whether you were faithful or not. And it will be this. Did you pass on to the next generation the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that those who place their faith in Him and who turn in repentance to God can have eternal life, And that all of our praise and all of our worship and all of our whole lives is meant to be lived with this God and to walk with this God and to worship this God all the days of our lives. You could fail to pass on every bit of knowledge, experience, and all the assets you own to the next generation. But if you pass on the gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation, you are faithful in the eyes of God. When I was a student at Coastal, I uh, majored in communication. I know that we have some folks here this morning who are currently working on their communication degree, and uh, I'm with you at heart. It's the easiest road to a diploma. Um, I know we're on the same page. You know, somebody here knows I'm talking about them. I took this class. uh, It was on communication theory. And uh, I'm so sorry. sorry. Um, I took this class. It was on communication theory. And uh, there was a case study uh, on one of the theories. And and the idea had to do with uh, assumptions and responsibility. And the the way the test worked is that they um, wanted to bring people in to sit in these booths where they couldn't see one another, but they, w- they could hear each other talking to one another. 
And what the people running the test would do is at some point in the conversation, they would have one of the people make a loud scream and make a thud like they were falling out of the booth. And what they wanted to see is how likely were people to jump out of their booths to go help the person that they knew was, knew was hurt. What they found is that the more people participating in the experiment at once, the less likely it was for, for anyone to jump out and help. So when they started with a dozen people, the, you know, the scream went off, the thud happened, almost nobody got out of their booth to help. But as the numbers dwindled down, 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 it became more and more likely that people would jump out to help until it, it came down to when it was always one person talking to another person and the scream happened and the thud hit. That other person always jumped out to go help the other person. And this is what I learned about that. When we assume that someone else is going to take responsibility for something, we are far less likely to jump in and help. But when we know that the burden of responsibility falls squarely on us, all of us, we are called into action and we jump in to help. Guys, here's the reality. The responsibility to pass the gospel on to the next generation belongs to no one but you. And when we assume that someone else is teaching our kids the gospel, or when someone else is passing on the gospel to the other younger people in our church, or someone else is out there sharing their faith, guess what happens? The gospel gets lost. Max Stiles, in his book, Marks of the Messenger, I would encourage you to read that book. It's a small, short read. Uh, he puts it this way. Losing the gospel doesn't happen all at once. It's much more like a four-generation process. And I think we've got a slide that, that kind of maps onto this that, so you can see how this works. He, he puts it this way. The gospel is accepted. The gospel is assumed. The gospel is confused. And then the gospel is lost. He goes on to say, For any generation to lose the gospel is tragic, but the generation that assumes the gospel is the generation that is most responsible for the loss of of the gospel. Guys, caring about the next generation is actually not enough. Caring about the economy, caring about education, caring about what kind of government we're going to have, as important as those things might be, there is something far more significant. To truly, if you want to truly care about the next generation, then your call is to prioritize Jesus Christ above everything else in your life so that Jesus Christ becomes unignorable in your homes, in our city, and in our world. People should be stumbling over Jesus Christ to get through their life if they know you. They should be constantly being met with the truths and the reality of who God is. Discipleship is not for someone else. Discipleship is for you. Because if you're a Christian, then it means you are called to pass on the truths of the gospel to the next generation. And if we assume that someone else is doing it, then we'll lose the gospel. We're never responsible to make someone follow Jesus, but we are responsible to proclaim Jesus like the universe depends upon it. 
So we've looked down to consider what's under our feet. We've looked forward to think about our hope and what's on the horizon. We've looked back now to think about our legacy, what we're passing on, what we're leaving behind. And now the psalmist is going to encourage us to look inward, to consider what gives us life. And so forth, we need God's grace for a lifetime of revival. We need God's grace for a lifetime of revival. You are going to seek life in something. Uh, I know you. And I know that you want to be happy. Uh, you want to enjoy your life. You want to feel good about where you are in life. And you constantly seek that thing that will bring fresh life into your heart. And what I love about this psalm is that this old man, he's pretty honest. He's pretty honest about his life. He understands the ebbs and flows of walking with God. He understands the peaks and the valleys of walking with God. And so he leads us to think about God's reviving mercies in verses 20 and 21. He says, You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. This psalmist, this mature old saint, he understands how life really works. He knows that even for those who put their trust in God, there are seasons of drought. There are seasons when it doesn't feel like walking with God is, is fun. There are seasons when um, our own hearts are, are dry. There are seasons when our faith just feels weak and insignificant. And so in those times, in those moments when life hits a drought, when life hits a valley, where will we turn for life? What are we going to go after to, to fill us back up again? Well, I love in verse 20, we see this word revive. Revive means to bring back to life again. See, revival is not an event. Revival is not something that you can advertise for. It's not something that you can invite someone to. Revival happens when God pours his life out into our hearts so that we have a rejuvenating and a reorienting expression of his life in us. So all of a sudden, we're excited again about walking with God. We're excited again about the Word of God. We're excited again when we hear the gospel, that the joy of our salvation is, is reinvigorated in our hearts and in our lives. And only God can do that through the power of His Spirit. When somebody is struggling physically, let's say, for example, dehydration. Now, there's two different approaches you could take to help somebody out like that. Uh, one approach is to fill up a big bucket of ice-cold water and to dump it on their head. And you might get a, a, an initial reaction. You might get a jolt of you know, energy and excitement. Uh, but the other option would be to put an IV uh, in, their, uh, in their arm or somewhere and let life be flowed back into them from the inside out. Now, listen, the IV would not be nearly as exciting, right? The bucket of ice-cold water sounds like a great idea, but in the long run... The IV is actually going to be able to bring somebody back to health, actually going to bring vitality to somebody because instead of working from the outside in, it's working from the inside out. And this is what I've noticed. Uh, as I've heard even just my, myself talking and I've heard other people talking, I think for some reason we think that when the calendar ticks from 2020 to 2021 that all of a sudden some revival is going to happen. That we think that all of a sudden, uh, that the, the, the tick of the calendar over into a new year is just going to bring all this great new life back into our lives. 
Haven't we learned? Every year we set those same goals in January. Every year we try to make those diet adjustments. Every year we try to do things in our life that will, that will bring life back into us. And guess what? They last, what, four or five weeks? We get an initial jolt. We get that big bucket of ice cold water and then we realize it, it didn't actually get down to the core. What the psalmist is after here is not a bucket of ice cold water. He is after the resurrection power of God in his life. All other attempts, when we attempt revival from the outside in, it will never work. Revival can only happen from the inside out. And here's the thing. Revival is actually not like this big mountaintop experience, right? So it's, it's actually a lot more like that IV, right? Revival is brought down into our lives from God through the regular, ordinary means of His grace, so you should expect revival in your heart when you are consistently meditating upon the Word of God. You should expect revival in your heart when you are regularly gathering with God's people on the Lord's day to sing His praises and hear His Word preached. You should expect revival in your heart when you are spending everything you have for the sake of Christ's name, knowing that God will be faithful to fill you back up again, even if it means... <laughs> having to raise you up from the dead like he did with Jesus. I don't know about you, sometimes when I, get, um, when, I, when I get to where I'm feeling empty, I think that sometimes maybe it's, I feel like I'm too uh, spent, like I've given too much, like I've overdone it, and that can happen. But as I was thinking about this, this passage this week and, and really thinking about my own life, um, have we considered that maybe one of the reasons that we haven't experienced revival in our hearts is that we actually haven't given enough? That we actually haven't surrendered all? That maybe God wants, maybe He wants to revive us, but He's not going to bless our selfishness. And if we would just go all in, if we would actually just pour it all out, he would be faithful to breathe his resurrection life back into ours again. So we look down to consider what's under our feet. We look forward to think about our horizon. We look back to think about our legacy. Looked in to think about where we're seeking life. And then finally, and I think probably most importantly, of all the things we talked about this morning, this is probably, think, when you're thinking about the big picture, Think about what makes a life of significance. This is probably the most important thing. Fifth and finally, we need God's grace for a lifetime of praise. We need God's grace for a lifetime of praise. So you were created to be a worshiping being. You are going to worship something. You are going to praise something. You are going to elevate and exalt something in your life. And I think it's fitting that the, at the end of this psalm, this old saint, this old mature saint, he just bursts forth an explosion of praise. Now, if you've noticed it, he's been praising all the way through, but this last segment, he really just explodes forth with praise in verses 22 through 24. He says, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness. Oh, my God, I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed, who 
who sought to do me hurt. The psalmist, even as he wrestles through the challenges of life, he never forgets to praise his faithful God. And, and I don't know, maybe you noticed it, maybe you didn't, but, but he's really been just ringing one note all the way throughout the psalm. There's been one note that he's been uh, hitting over and over and over again to call our attention to God's character in order that we might respond in worship. In verse 2, he said, In your righteousness, deliver me. In verse 15, he said, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. In verse 16, he says, I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Verse 19, he says, Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. And then here in this last section, verse 24, And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. See, we all have reasons for why we worship what we worship. We exalt the team because they win. We exalt a person because they're beautiful. We exalt ourselves because we we think we're smart and we think we know all the answers to life. But as the psalmist looks at who God is, he is blown away by God's righteousness. So I just want to pause and just think about that for just a minute. You know, almost want to just give our own hearts some ammunition for praise, some ammunition for worship when we think about God's righteousness. Well, God's righteousness is the foundation for God's faithfulness. This morning we heard, read from Lamentations 3 that great is your faithfulness, new are your mercies every morning. Why can we trust God? Why can we trust that He will be faithful to us He's perfectly righteous. He'll never go back on what he said he's done. God's righteousness is the purity of his love. Right? Everybody else in your life who loves you, there's some mix of ulterior motive, there's some mix of selfishness, but God's love comes to you with perfection. It is a right love, it is a righteous love. God's righteousness is the promise of his justice. Right? How can we know that in the end, God is going to make all things right? It's because He's righteous. He sees life the way it really is. He knows what's true and what's false. We know He's going to make things right because He's righteous. God's righteousness is the, the essence of His wisdom. Right? We all have people in our lives who give us advice, and we know automatically there's no way we're taking it because we know they're an idiot. We know they're not right. The reason you listen to wisdom, the reason wisdom is worth following, is because that person actually sees life correctly. And then I think probably my favorite meditation of all, thinking about God's righteousness, it feels so, they feel so opposed. They feel almost contradictory. But God's righteousness is actually the glory of His grace. God's grace is not this mushy-gushy, tolerant stuff that we swim in. God has a strict standard. God cannot deny himself. He cannot let sin go unpunished. And so how does he show us grace? How can he give sinners that which they do not deserve? 
If you look in Romans 3, there's, you don't feel like you have to turn there. Maybe go there later today. That's the dilemma. That's the dilemma of the gospel. God giving us what we don't deserve, does that mean he's not righteous? Does that mean he doesn't know what he's doing as a judge? When God put forward Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, it actually wasn't first and foremost about us. It was first and foremost about declaring that he is righteous, that he doesn't bend his law, that he doesn't go against his own character, but that because he loved us anyway, he would give Jesus Christ to pay the penalty, that the condemnation that we deserve would fall upon him, that he would become the just and the justifier of sinners. God's righteousness is what makes his grace glorious because the way he did it is unfathomable. No one could have dreamed up this story. No one could have made this good news up. And I share all this with you just to say that God's righteousness is worth, it's worth us praising him. It's worth us worshiping him. I love in verse 19 how the psalmist asks the question, Oh God, who is like you? Implied answer, no one. So when you think about the big picture of your life, you're going to worship something, you're going to exalt something, you are going to elevate something. But what God wants, what the psalmist wants, is for our hearts to be ravished with the fact that really the big picture is God himself, that it's really about him, and that we exist to to lift him high. So before we wrap up this morning, I want to try to make this practical. And uh, I want to do that by addressing um, a couple different groups of people. Uh, I want to address the younger folks in the room, and then I'm going to address the more seasoned folks in the room, and then I want to talk about us collectively as a church. So uh, first off, I want to speak to you if you're a young person here in the room. Uh, I want to give you an encouragement, and then I want to give you a challenge. Here's my encouragement to you if, if you're a young person here in the room. Um, While you're young, start now. Give everything you have to making sure that you get the big picture of what life's really all about right. Um, You are being bombarded all day long with messages about what the good life is, about what the big picture, about about what real life is all about. Give yourself fully and completely now, while you're young, to getting the big picture right so that you can pursue it and enjoy life with God for the rest of your life. And here's my challenge to you. I want to challenge you uh, to get to know somebody in this church who is a good bit older than you. Uh, Find somebody that you've never met who's older than you. Go up to them, shake their hand, uh, or maybe don't shake their hand. (laughs) Uh, Ask them out to a cup of coffee. Go have lunch with them and ask them. Ask them to tell you about how God's been faithful in their life. Ask them to teach you how to read the Bible and how to walk with God and how to to make it to the end and finish well. 
Now I want to uh, address the more seasoned folks in the room. Um, obviously, I'm intentionally not throwing any numbers out there today, so you feel free to put yourself in whatever category uh, you think is right. Um, but here's my encouragement to you if you're, if you're a, a more seasoned saint. Um, finish well. The second half of every game is always the most important half of the game. Don't rest on what God did in, the, in your past. But give everything you have. Pour it all out, all the way to the finish line, with your last breath being giving glory to God. And then here's my challenge to you. It's going to sound similar. Um, we have some really bright, young people in this church who show lots of promise and who have lots of potential, but they need you to disciple them. They need you to teach them how to walk with God. They need you to pour into them the truths of the gospel that, that you've known from your youth. And so take the initiative. Go meet a young person that you've never met before. Give them an elbow or a fist bump and invite them out to lunch. Invite them over to your house and pour your life into them. No one else is going to disciple the next generation but you. And then I just want to think about this as a church, right? I mean, obviously, this, this psalm speaks to each of us individually. It kind of hits us wherever we are. But what about as a church? You know, as a church, it's just as easy to lose sight of the big picture. It's just as easy to lose perspective. Every church, as a group, as a collective group, will have to ter- come to terms with some things. Are we going to trust in our own strength? Or are we going to trust in the power of God? Are we going to put our hope in how popular we are in the culture around us, or are we going to put our hope in the promises of God? Are we going to seek to pass on sort of our own uh, selfish traditions, or are we going to pass on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we going to seek life in the passing fads and trends of this world, or are we going to seek our life in the Holy Spirit of God? Are we going to exalt this church? Look around, guys. Or are we going to humbly lay everything we have on the altar of the worship of the one true and living God? Some of you know the chief end of man. The chief end of man, according to the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so what does that mean about the chief end of the church? The chief end of the church is to glorify God and enjoy Him together. By God's grace, I pray that He will lead us to such a glorious end. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you this morning. We look to you both for the big picture. God, we know that we are being crowded in all around us with ideas about what the blessed life is, about what the good life is. So Lord, we need your help this morning to paint for us your big picture, the picture of life that you originally intended for us. But Lord, we also need more than that. God, many of us in this room, we know what a life of significance is, but we've been trying to do it in our own strength. We've lost sight of our desperate need for your grace. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning that you'd revive us again. Breathe your resurrection life back into our hearts. God, for the young people in this room, 
that you would lead them to set today the cornerstone of their life that they would live for your glory all the days of their life. For the more seasoned saints in this room, Lord, that you would give them a passion to pour out everything in them for the sake of the gospel in the next generation. Lord, all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen.